0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar phone. wind turbines.
1: I mean, it's all about money. Really, if you want to understand why we have the policy we do, it's very helpful to look at who will be making money and who is benefiting. Money corrupts.
0: For September 6th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. At this point, it will probably come as no surprise to our listeners to learn that Texas, the heart of the U.S. oil business, has some, shall we say, rather lax rules around potential conflicts of interest for those who have stakes in the oil and gas business there. And for those who listened to episode 73 on regulatory capture, episode 177 on how utilities abuse the public trust and corrupt their own regulators, and episode 198 on how the coal industry has thoroughly corrupted the regulators and elected officials of West Virginia, it probably won't come as much of a surprise to learn that Texas has its share of legislators and regulators who use their positions to advantage the oil and gas business in the state. But what our listeners may not know is that, as the old saw goes, everything is bigger in Texas, including regulatory and legislative capture. In fact, not only does the chair of the commission in Texas that regulates the oil and gas business personally earn royalties from some of the very oil and gas leases she regulates, so does her father, who oversaw her office from the state legislature, and he too collects cash for doing little more than brokering deals in the state. A lot of cash, as it turns out. That's according to recent investigative journalism by Russell Gold for Texas Monthly, in which he traced back through hundreds of documents scattered across dozens of offices around the state to put this picture together for the first time. And what a sordid picture it is. In today's conversation, Russell rejoins us to detail his findings and explain how the uniquely Texan approach to regulation, lawmaking, and dealmaking works. We also check in on the progress that Texas is making, and not making, to prevent the kind of grid blackout that happened during the big freeze of February 2021, as we discussed in Russell's last appearance on the show in episode 145. Finally, we zoom out a bit and ask where exactly the limits to corruption in Texas actually are, and how rank-and-file voters in the state feel about it. So, yes, it's another story from the dark side of the energy transition, but an important one to understand because it reveals a lot about the power of the oil and gas industry in the U.S. Then in the news segment, we'll review some recent efforts by Republican legislators in Texas to kill its renewable energy industry and how advocates for the energy transition defeated them. We'll check out some reports on how a lack of transmission capacity is preventing some of the solar and wind power in Texas from reaching customers who need it. We'll explore a new FERC rule designed to speed up interconnection processes. We'll detail a plan from the Heritage Foundation that would dismantle federal climate initiatives if a Republican wins the presidency in the next election. And we'll see how falling prices for Chinese solar modules will boost the deployment of solar in India. And now our conversation with Russell Gold, recorded July 5th, 2023. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Russell, to the Energy Transition Show.
1: Oh, Thank you very much for having me again.
0: You know, today we're going to discuss regulatory capture and corruption in Texas using a couple of your recent articles in Texas Monthly as a springboard. In those articles, you explored the oil and gas industry's connections with Tom Craddock, a Republican who has served in the Texas House of Representatives for 54 years and who is the longest serving state lawmaker in the United States. You also traced numerous connections with his daughter, Christy Craddock, who is the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, which regulates the oil and gas industry in Texas. Tom Craddock also sat on the Energy Resources Committee, which oversees the Railroad Commission, and he served as the House Speaker from 2003 to 2009. So what did you find in your
1: investigation? Well, my investigation actually began in the summer of 2021, when I was out in West Texas and I was touring a ranch, and the rancher offhand pointed to a well out of particularly notable well, just one of thousands of wells throughout the Permian Basin and so say, you won't believe who owns a small portion of that well. And I said, who? It's told Tom Craddock. And I thought, well, that was interesting. I didn't know Tom Craddock owned wells. Hmm. And so I started looking into it, going county by county at first, physically going to different county offices. And then I quickly learned that I could just download all this information fairly easily. And looking at how many wells Tom Craddock and the Craddock family own. And what I found was that they own slices, little portions of 1%, 2%, hundreds of and hundreds of wells across many counties in West Texas. And I gathered up all that data and I started asking myself, well, wait a second, we can find out how much these wells are valued at, uh-huh. but we could also find out, you know, if you know that they own 1% of a well... You can go in and find out how much oil was produced in that well and then make a fairly good estimation based on the price of West Texas crude. And you got to take a little discount because, you know, your price, your wellhead's not exactly the price you're going to get at a trading hub. And I took a look and I was sort of gobsmacked, to be honest with you, because these little slivers of about 600 different oil and gas leases, they added up to millions of dollars, more than $10 million that the family earned from their oil and gas holdings in just one year. And there was nothing special about that year. Oil prices were a little on the high side, so maybe it was a little more than they would make in an average year, but there was no reason why in 2023, they're not gonna also have a multi-million dollar payday. And so what I uncovered really was that this family led by Tom Craddock, a very powerful member of the state legislature, and his daughter, who is the top regulator of the oil and gas industry, are literally making millions of dollars a year from this industry. Wow. And you really can't think of a larger or more troubling conflict of interest than what was sitting out there in county courthouses just waiting to be discovered. So this
0: data had never been compiled before. This isn't something that you could just go easily look up. You actually had to go figure out for yourself, based on royalty data from 41 county tax offices across Texas?
1: Yep, yep. You download the data and you start looking and say, okay, well, who owns these wells? And sometimes going back decades, a lease might have two owners. The original family that owns it would retain 25% and then they'd lease 75% to Exxon or some other oil and gas company. But over the years, that 25% would get split and split and split. The eight grandchildren would each get an eighth of the original 25%, and then one of them would have three. And so you go to these these county courthouses, and you find every lease might have 100, 200, 300 different fractional owners, some owning a fraction of 1%, and some more. So you have to start adding that up and building these databases. But it was all right there. The tricky part, honestly, was then getting from those leases, oil and gas production, Yeah, matched by lease name, how much was being produced. But right. that's all in the Railroad Commission too. If the information's out there, it just took a while to build this. And I had help from a Northwestern intern named Meher Yeda, who helped me put a lot of this together. I've got to give her credit.
0: That's fascinating. So you said they were making about a year from these leases. Mm -hmm. So did you get an estimate of like, what's the rough value of the family's mineral holdings?
1: Well, that's a fascinating question because on the tax rolls, it was only about $20 million. That's what they were paying taxes on. It's the equivalent of they own a a house in Dallas worth $20 million and how much they would have to pay taxes on. Uh But that's really quite a low number. As someone put it to me, you know, if you can show me an asset that's throwing off $10 million of cash each year and is valued at 20000000 million, I'll buy it in a second, <laughs> you know, to get got two-year return. Yeah, But there's a reason for that. And the reason is that a lot of these county offices, these tax collectors, and they all subcontract with about four or five different companies. It's very difficult to accurately determine how much the value of the oil is under that lease, especially if it's never been drilled or if it doesn't have a modern well on. Right. So there were definitely situations where they would have a lease that was being valued at a hundred dollars because there was a well that was drilled forty years ago. But the second you drill a modern horizontal frack well, the value would go way up. And I saw that time and again. So I think twenty million dollars is a gross undervaluation of how much it really hold.
0: Yeah, I was wondering like how could they possibly come up with an appraised value for that? So Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Guesswork. There's a lot of guesswork. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, what they do is they look at the production and the value of the production, and they make an estimate based on that. And that's why if you have land that's right there outside of Midland, and everyone knows that you're sitting on top of a lot of oil, if you haven't drilled a modern well, if you're not producing much oil, you're not going to pay many taxes on
0: it. I mean, it's hard to imagine that this is even legal. Well,
1: welcome to Texas. (laughs) It is legal. There is nothing that prevents a state lawmaker or an oil and gas regulator from owning oil and gas interest. There really one basic requirement, and that is that you disclose that. And when I looked at the public filings, the disclosure filings, they would in fact disclose payments from oil and gas companies. But the state of Texas the computer system they use to get and to figure out how much lawmakers or any other elected official owns basically gives you like three choices. It's under $18,000, between 18000 and 46000 and then more than $46,000 a year. And so I came across situations where the Craddock family was getting hundreds of thousands of dollars in royalty payments from major oil and gas companies, and they would check more than 46000 There was just no way from the public document to determine exactly how much they were getting, or at least there was no simple way to go and sort of pull the personal financial statements and say, oh, these guys are making lots of money from oil and gas. You really had to do the hard work. Wow.
0: But- in Texas, members of the Public Utility Commission, the regulator for the utility industry, must divest from all investments in the industries they regulate, and they can't derive any money from regulated utilities. But right. yeah. But in the oil and gas industry, regulated by the Railroad Commission, or apparently the state legislature, uh, different matter.
1: Right. The Public Utility Commission, at least until... Texas deregulated its electricity industry, was a regulatory body. They oversaw a regulated industry. And there were rules that basically said, if you were appointed to this commission by the governor, you had to divest yourself of all this money. And there just never was anything like that for the Railroad Commission. The Railroad Commission, which... Just to make sure people understand, you know, this is something I have to say all the time, does not regulate railroads anymore. It regulates the oil and gas industry. Right. It's an elected position here in Texas. You're elected to, I think it's a six-year term. It's either a four or six-year term. So the idea there is that if the public doesn't like someone, doesn't like the job they're doing, that they can vote them out. And so there's a different set of rules. There was a major effort undertaken in 2013 to reduce conflict of interest and raise the ethical bar when something called the Texas Sunset Commission recommended limiting campaign contributions from oil and gas companies to railroad commissioners. It also recommended changing the name of the Railroad Commission to something like the Texas Energy Commission, something that people would understand. That matter, that died in the legislature. It didn't pass. So you have a situation where a member of the Railroad Commission, Christy Craddock, can be regulating an oil company and taking campaign contributions from that oil company at the same time. Wow! And to our north in Oklahoma, the Corporations Commission, which regulates oil and gas, they've got a hold. When you become a Corporations Commissioner up in Oklahoma, you have to take a special pledge above and beyond what any other elected officials in Oklahoma, that you don't have interest in the oil and gas industry. It's actually it's a little bit of a holdover. You've got to take a pledge. You don't own interest in like elevator companies and railroads <laughs> and canals. It's a whole laundry list of different entities that used to huh. Texas is different. And we have opened ourselves up to the kind of situation that my reporting in Texas Monthly uncovered. Specifically, that you can have a family that is readily influential in the regulation of an industry also making millions of dollars a year from that industry.
0: Incredible. So what do the Craddocks do to earn their money
1: here? Are they actually producing oil or what? Well, that's, what's so fascinating. They're not, they're not a producer at all. They are minority owners and they own little slices of these wells, which entitles them to, but they own 1% of the well. They're entitled to 1% of the, the revenue that comes from the well. But here's, what's sort of fascinating. And that is that a lot of their ownership, sometimes they'll have what's called a working interest, which basically means if you own 1%, you pay 1% of the cost of the wealth if you need to do a workover, but you get 1% of the revenue from it. But a lot of what they own is through what's called an overriding royalty interest, which basically means they don't have to pay anything. Other people carry their costs. They are just purely beneficiaries of the value of the oil and gas that's produced from that well. And so it's mailbox money for a lot of these wells. Huh. They're not putting anything in, but every once in a while, a paycheck will arrive or a check will arrive. This is zero proceeds. It's a really, it's a very lucrative arrangement,
0: frankly. So what do people like Tom Craddock do to earn these royalty interests?
1: Well, that's a fascinating question because it really kind of goes back a little bit to the history of the oil and gas industry. Okay. Sometimes you would have what's called a lease hound. Someone would go out put together a lease or do the geology and they would bring a package to an oil and gas company and say, Hey, I've got all this kind of put together. And they would acquire it. And as sort of payment, the lease hound would get an overriding royalty interest. So it's kind of like a tip in a way or a payment that brings them into this well. But in the case of what Tom Craddock was doing, he was often just operating as the middleman. He would hear of a company that wanted to acquire leases, and he would know of a company that perhaps would want to sell, and he would bring those companies together and take a commission. So it really was sort of a commission work that he was doing, putting himself in between deals out the oil. Just being a power broker, basically. Absolutely. He knows everyone in Midland. As you said in the introduction, he has been the state representative from Midland, since before man first walked on the moon for a very long time. If you're an elected official for that long, you know everyone. You can walk into the Midland Petroleum Club and find out what's going on and who's doing what. But what's interesting is that, go back to the 1970s and 1980s, there were not a lot, but there were a handful of people, these middlemen operating in Midland. These days, you don't need a middleman to know what's being bought and what's being sold. There are companies that will bring all this together and you can just go into something in Enverus or another company that's sort of a digital marketplace in the oil and gas industry and say, hey, look, I'm looking to purchase leases in this and that county that have not been drilled or going for this much. I mean, they'll tell you what's for sale. So it's a dying industry to be a middleman like this.
0: Well, yeah, I would think that once there aren't a whole lot of deals to be made (laughs) to carve up this territory, that would be the case. So I understand that this is, for some reason, legal, but how does the public view these stakes that people like the Craddocks have in the oil and gas royalties?
1: Well, the public really didn't know about it.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news About the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Listeners may recall that in News Item 3 of Episode 202, we reported that Republicans in the Texas Senate tried to shut down the renewable industry in the state by inserting sneaky provisions into a must pass reauthorization bill for the State Public Utilities Commission that would have made it difficult, if not impossible, to continue building and operating renewables in the state. Fortunately, those bills, House Bill 3707 and Senate Bill 624, did not make it out of the legislature. As David Wallace-Wells reported in his column on the bill's defeat, Texas energy consultant Doug Lewin explained it as follows, quote, A remarkable coalition of environmentalists, industry organizations, and business groups, including more than 50 chambers of commerce, manufacturers, generators, oil and gas advocates, and others, stopped very real efforts to shut down the renewable energy industry in Texas, end quote. In particular, Lewin credited State Representative Todd Hunter of Corpus Christi for the bill's defeat for emphasizing that killing renewables would cost Texas consumers real money. Perhaps Wallace Wells is correct that this turn of events demonstrates that times have changed and the momentum is in favor of the energy transition now. I'd certainly like to think so. However, the bills could certainly be reintroduced in a future legislative session, because Republicans will continue to defend the fossil fuel industry for as long as they continue to receive money from it. Despite the efforts of lawmakers to delay and undermine the energy transition, renewable energy continues to post strong growth in Texas and provide critical support to the grid, especially during the heat waves of June and July this year. Renewables provided as much as 40% of Texas's power during peak usage at the end of June, according to Lewin, up from 25% in 2022. And the EIA expects the state to add more solar and wind capacity in 2023 than all other states combined. Item 2. Renewable energy production in Texas on June 28th hit an all-time high of nearly 42% during peak hours, helping the state to make it through a period of triple-digit temperatures that also pushed demand on the state's grid to a new record high as residents cranked up their Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow@mastodon.energy at or on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melzheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.